For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who, who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. It's like a class. Do that again. No, it's all right. We don't need to do that again. Uh, we're adults. Uh, bless you. <laughs> and also with you. Uh, here at St. Jude's, we are in really the middle of our series looking at Romans 9, 10, and 11, which we've entitled A Sovereign God. But this is, of course, part of a bigger four-year series. Not that we preached uh, every week but all the way through the book of Romans. And we're deep in the middle of a really big question that Paul is working through with his church in Rome. In chapters 1 to 8, Paul has outlined this amazing gospel, this new life in Christ and the wonderful blessings. And Romans 8 ends with his amazing promises that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he hits chapter 9, verse 1, with this big question, which he then spends these chapters unpacking for us. Well, if that's true, if these are God's promises, why are so few Israelites turning and following Jesus as the Christ? Now, the challenge, of course, is for us who are not Jewish people. Why, well, why is this important? Well, it's important for us because if these promises aren't seeming to be fulfilled for the Jewish people who God has chosen... How much more worrying then is it for us who are not the Jewish people? The big question here is, can we actually trust God's promises? And that is what Paul is unpacking for us in these chapters. And what we see is these two great themes emerge. Our chapter 9 particularly focus, has focused on God's sovereignty, his kingship. God chooses who he will choose. He will have mercy on who he will have mercy. 
That's chapter 9. And then as we come to chapter 10, we realize also at the same time, Israel is responsible. There is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And these two things sit together in tension. And then we get to chapter 11. I'm not going to tell you now. Partly because we have limited time. But secondly, it's, uh, Mike's preaching on it next week. And it's, I want you to come back and be excited. So I'm just going to wait appetite. Come back. There's an extra bit being added on for us, which is great. Now, the verses we have tonight, what Paul is doing in these verses is really continuing an argument he started earlier in chapter 10. And earlier in chapter 10, Paul kind of says, look, the Jewish people were really zealous. They were passionate about serving God. But they're zealous. Their passion was not enough. They hadn't been guided or shaped by God's word. They hadn't responded And then what he does in this second half of chapter 10 is address a slightly different aspect to that same question. And what he wants to say is, look, it's not as though Israel have missed out on the secret ingredient, the mystery which meant they could follow Jesus. Because an objection might be, look, look, this is the gospel, yes. Here are the key things you need for salvation, Maybe Israel's missed out on just a key bit of information that would have unlocked it all and then they'd be following Jesus. It's a bit like saying, look, we're trying to make a cake, but we're missing some key ingredients. We've got no flour, no eggs and no chocolate. How on earth can we make a cake? It's not our fault. There's something missing, perhaps. And what Paul says, no, there is nothing missing in the gospel explanation that you've received. And he says, look, Israel, as well as the Gentiles, are dependent upon God, yes, but all the information they need, both Jew and Gentile, is available to them. They actually haven't missed out on anything crucial. There's no eggs missing from the cake, Israel. In other words, you are still responsible. And what you'll notice, too, is how much Old Testament Paul shoves into these verses. There's quote after quote, particularly from the prophet Isaiah, but also from the Psalms and also from Deuteronomy, the books of the law. We have the law, the writings, and the prophet. The whole of the Old Testament scripture is represented in the information Paul gives to this church, saying there is no excuse. And that's what we have in verse 14. We have this listing of all the things that that are needed for someone to be saved, for someone to hear the gospel and respond. And what he's doing is he's going to kind of lay out the kind of order and then go back and say, let me show you how at each step Israel has received the the bit of information that they needed. So he kind of sets out the order first in those verses in 14 and 15. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And so what we need to do is kind of reverse engineer this whole thing. We need to kind of flip it over. And we start with, well, a preacher must be sent. And that preacher must then preach good news. And then thirdly, the good news must be heard. And then fourthly, that heard good news must be believed. And fifthly, that belief must lead to someone calling upon God, calling upon his name. Now, generally speaking, we kind of know what sending is. Like, get out. Well, nicely. Please get out. (laughs) 
go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We get that. We understand what preaching is generally, you know, verbal proclamation. We understand what hearing is. It's what you're doing now, hopefully. And we generally understand what believing is, to trust something, to put your faith in something. But what does Paul mean by calling on God? What does it mean to call? I mean, is it just talking about saying his name? God! Is that what it means? It means more than that. It means more than that. To call upon God and also to call upon his name. Remember, the word name doesn't just mean someone's name, like John. To call on someone's name is to invoke their authority based on their character. Stop in the name of the law. Or the court, the court has its name has a sense of authority that the judge has due to their name, their position of authority. And so to call upon God means to appeal to his mercy and his sovereign power from a position of humility, weakness and need and then to respond with obedience and faith. That is to appeal to God in his mercy and sovereign power. So it recognises who God is, but it also recognises who God is by understanding who we are. Humility and weakness and need, and then respond with obedience and worship. And we actually see this again and again in the Old Testament, and particularly in the Psalms, where the idea of calling upon God is very prevalent. Let me give you just three brief examples. Uh, Psalm 18, verse 3. The psalmist says, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Uh, Or Psalm 50, verse 15, where God is speaking in this psalm, and it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Or Psalm 145, verse 18, The Lord is near, that, that, that means come to the rescue of, not just hanging around closely, like my dog does, not near, near, to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And so that's what Paul means when he's speaking about calling. It's a belief that leads you to call upon God's sovereignty and mercy, recognising your own humility and need, and then responding with worship. So it's not just intellectual assent. It's a reshaping of your life. So if someone is sent, someone preaches, someone hears, someone believes and then calls upon the name of the Lord. And then Paul adds something, just a little bit extra in verse 17, to flesh it out, just in case we've missed it. He quotes uh, in verse 16, firstly, uh, Isaiah 53, Lord who's believed our message. But then in 17, he repeats three of these steps again. And he makes one of these steps more explicit. He says, consequently, faith comes from hearing, that is believing, comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word about Christ. And so we have these three steps repeated, believing and hearing and preaching. But Paul wants to focus and say, look, what is really crucial here is not just preaching in general, saying stuff, 
but preaching about Christ. That sits at the heart of this process. Preaching about Christ, the Lord Jesus. The same gospel that Paul has been preaching about all the way through here. That sits at the heart of this process of salvation. It's the word of Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the word about Christ, the great gospel. And so the order is clear. We have someone is sent to preach, but they're to preach, secondly, the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. And hearing is not just hearing anything, it's hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believing is believing this gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ and then calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Paul repeats that for emphasis to make sure we understand. And then he concludes in verse 15 with this really beautiful and bizarre image. It's beautiful and bizarre. Have a look at verse 15. Once again, he's quoting Isaiah because this is full of Old Testament references. Uh, Isaiah 52.7, Paul says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, we kind of think, oh, that's a very pretty image. But we need to understand what's going on with feet in Paul's day. Because in Paul's day, feet were never beautiful. You might agree with Paul still to this day, by the way. Uh, in those days, most people were barefoot, or if you, were, if you were, had fancy background, you had sandals. Right? They were the Doc Martin boots or the Converse All-Stars of the first century. And the roads, there were no nice paved roads or little cobblestone laneways that were really cool. It was dirt or mud or excrement. That were your choices. So your best choice was dirt, obviously. But the reality was the streets where animals and humans defecated, you'd be walking through that either with bare feet or with sandals. Needless to say, your feet generally weren't considered nice. <laughs> you would generally wash your feet Often, every time you came into someone's house, you wouldn't traipse your nice, clean, uh, dirty feet or sandal through someone's house. They would never be considered beautiful. When I tread in dog poo, my feet are not beautiful. But what does Paul say? In a context where feet are disgusting and dirty, he says, no, no, no. When there are people who preach the gospel, those preachers, those proclaimers of the gospel are so precious so valuable that even their dirty, scaly, scabby, stinky, bunion-ridden feet are beautiful. So precious is the message that they carry. See, beautiful feet are not those soft and manicured, you know the ads for um, nail polish stuff? I don't, you know, those perfect feet. They are not beautiful feet. Beautiful feet are dirty and worn and wrinkled and scarred from travelling and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And one of, the, one of the beautiful implications of this verse is that you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you call upon the name of Christ, you know somebody with beautiful feet. You know somebody with... It's kind of a weird thing to say, right? I know someone with beautiful feet. You do. Why? Because they shared the gospel of Christ with you. It could be a family member. 
could be your mother. It's Mother's Day today. What a great, what a great gift a mother can give. It could be a friend. It could be a family member. It could be a random stranger. But they had beautiful feet because they brought you good news. And of course, the other implied challenge to us is, well, do we have beautiful feet? St. Jude's Parkville, we have beautiful feet. Once again, a little bit awkward, but, but is it true? Where do your feet carry you? In your workplace? In your place of study when you visit family and friends? When you sit and have a cup of coffee with someone? And are your feet beautiful? Do you bring that amazing, life-changing gospel with you? Do you preach and share that great love? Are your feet beautiful? Well, what we read as we continue through Romans 10 is another interesting and challenging reality is that sometimes beautiful feet bring good news, but hard hearts refuse to listen. See, the big question is, if if this is what happens, if beautiful feet bring good news, well, why haven't Israel responded? They've been sent beautiful feet with the gospel. And what we see here is that the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The feet are great. Podiatrist, two thumbs up. The heart is a problem. There needs to be a spiritual cardiologist at work. And so what Paul does is he then goes through each kind of section of that previous order to show them that they're not missing out. It's not lack of people's sense, says Paul. He quotes Isaiah 52. Look, the beautiful feet have been sent. Isaiah has preached the good news. Secondly, it's not lack of good news being proclaimed. In verse 16, Isaiah says, look, Lord, who has believed our message? In other words, Isaiah's preached a message. The gospel's gone out. Thirdly, it's, it's not as though Israel didn't hear it. In verse 18, Paul says, look, when they heard the good news, and, and then he quotes from, from Psalm 19, verse 4, their voice has gone out to the ends of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In other words, the words have gone out. You've heard them. And he's quoting Psalm 19 there. And so Israel have heard it. And fourthly, it's not as though Israel didn't understand it. It's not some random coded message that you need some secret kind of listening device to understand. Now, in verses 19 and 20, Paul explains to them. In verse 19, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32. He says, first, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding." And then in, in chapter 20, uh, sorry, verse 20, he quotes Isaiah 65 and he says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. That's how hard it was. And I revealed myself to those who didn't ask. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, look, both the law and the Old Testament prophets made it clear that the gospel could understood that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And it was so clear that even the Gentiles worked it out. Those who are not a nation, those, they weren't even looking for Jesus and they found him. That's how easy it was. 
They're no theological heavyweights. They haven't got the Old Testament scriptures available to them. Yet they understood who Christ is. So Israel can't say, oh, it was, it was too hard. It's 101. The Old Testament points to Christ. And the point Paul's making here, it's not an intellectual problem. People can know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ intellectually extremely well, yet not believe and call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, I used to drive a guy to work when I was working for an insurance company who could probably explain the gospel better than I could, which is a bit embarrassing when you're the Christian. He was an atheist, but he had read voraciously, had read scripture heaps, could quote scripture, could explain the gospel. But he didn't believe the gospel. He didn't call upon the name of the Lord. It's not an intellectual issue. So what's the problem? And so Paul tells us right at the very end of chapter 10 in verse 21. He's been building his case and you're thinking, well, what is it? Well, what is it? Well, what is it? And verse 21 comes and it's a bit of a harsh, harsh reality for Israel. Verse 21, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And I, if there's a little video thing we could show, is that possible to show that now? I realise we can do it a bit earlier, but now would be a good place to do it. This is a, if there was a modern GIF version, this is it. All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate... Now, we laugh, right, because it's a sheep. Um, and it's interesting that scripture refers to us as sheep. <laughs> I wonder why. That's the picture of what's happening with Israel. A disobedient and obstinate people. And do you see in that verse there are two sides? And what Paul is doing is he's painting a picture of, look, there are, there are two things at work here. You want to know why Israel's not following the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's look at these two sides. Well, firstly, on one side, there is God. And what is God's posture? Well, God is reaching out his hands in mercy and blessing. It, in my mind, it reminds me of the father in the prodigal son. Reaching out his hands to an undeserving people, people who don't deserve his grace. And he reaches out saying, come to me. And notice too, it says here, all day long, God is doing this. There is no break in God's mercy. It is endless. His mercy doesn't have a day off. The steadfast love of the Lord sometimes ceases. His mercies occasionally come to an end. No. His love Never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. There wasn't a moment where Israel said, okay, God, I've finally decided I do want your mercy. And God says, oh, sorry, I was distracted for a moment. All day long, his hands are reaching out to Israel. What about the other side? We have a picture of Israel as stubborn and forgetful and pig-headed and obstinate, just like that sheep. Rescued, great, now I'll go back down the hole again. And to notice the link between disobedience and unbelief. 
See, stubborn hearts are not just cold to trusting God. One step further, they actually will disobey God. And sin actually increases the hardness of our hearts. And this is why Israel's zeal, passion, which, which we saw last week, is so worthless. It's zeal. Great, that sheep, that sheep was zealous, wasn't it? Zealous to do the stupidest thing in the world. And so that, you notice how Paul finishes just with, that chap, just with that quote from Isaiah in verse 21. It finishes abruptly. And Paul is saying very clearly, you've, who's at fault? He's letting us work it out, right? Who is at fault? The God whose hands are open eternally in mercy or Israel who are obstinate and stubborn and disobedient. And we're left to make the decision, which is not a difficult decision to make. Open hands, hard heart. Israel's heart is the heart of the problem. And of course, this, when we point it towards ourselves, raises the question, well, what about our hearts? What about our hearts? Do you want to know the spiritual state of your heart? Here's some questions that help dig around a bit. What are your values? What are you giving glory to? What are you sacrificing for? What drives you? What, what do you daydream about? What do you really want to have? In what ways do you envy other people? What is your ultimate concern? What are you chasing after? What is the thing that you value most? You see, friends, the answer to those questions reveal the state of your heart. See, far too often, like Israel, we can hear the words of God clearly, but yet we willfully choose to reject them. We are fatally distracted by other words and voices and claims, desperately hopeful that there is something more to life, and so we chase after it away from God. But false hope is just that. And here's what makes things worse. When we realise we're heading the wrong way and we rebuke our hearts, they actually don't change. We are so often stubbornly sinful that it gets harder and harder to do it and we feel worse and we feel more guilty. See, friends, the reality is we need our hearts softened. Softened. We need our disobedient and obstinate hearts replaced with hearts of faith and obedience. Just as Israel did. That's... This is the great gospel moment in our lives. And so the question we ask ourselves is, well, what is our standing before God, which is that word righteousness which Paul has used earlier on in chapter 10, our right standing with God, what is that going to be based upon? 
Is that going to be based upon the zealousness of our ministry and our, our work and our attitude on how, how hard we try to do things or correct our own hearts? Well, that's one option. Or is it going to be based upon the glorious truth that God has given us new hearts? See, friends, if you want righteousness, if you want to stand before the God who, who has his arms open to you all day long, then what you need is a new heart. You need to trust not in your own abilities, your zeal, your efforts, your intelligence, but only in his grace and forgiveness. See, friends, it's on the cross where we see Jesus ultimately reaching out his hands in mercy. where he bears the cost of our disobedience and our stubbornness. People like you and me. And it's on that cross that Christ's heart stopped beating in order that we could have a new heart. And this is crucial because back to Romans 10, it says... If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we know, we know we will be saved. See, friends, I want no one to go home tonight not assured of their faith and salvation in Christ. The challenge is to look Everywhere but Christ. My prayer life, is that a measure of how I stand before Christ? Then I know I'll be saved. How often I come to church, that's a measure of how I will be saved. Well, good things, please do them. But they're not how you know you'll be saved. How do you know? Well, simple as this. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will know. When you look to Christ and Christ alone as the, as the foundation of your salvation, that it's as simple and as profound as that. It's as simple and as profound as that. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we long for more and more people to know the love of Christ. Please give us all beautiful feet, quick and swift to, to share your gospel. We pray that more preachers will be sent, that more preachers will preach the good news, that more good news will be heard, that more good news will be believed. And more and more people will call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we have beautiful feet and soft hearts. Hearts that have been softened by your grace. Hearts that come to the foot of the cross of Christ and are transformed. 
May we have mouths that confess that Christ is Lord, hearts that believe that you have raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And may we know with utmost assurance that we will be saved because of what you have done. Amen. Please stand and sing to the God of all mercy.